Good morning, everyone. So, you woke up today. That's good. God is good. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And we are continuing our verse-by-verse journey through Romans today. And what if I told you that God's love was demonstrated in the death of Christ for sinners? And what if I told you that God demonstrated his love mercifully toward weak, ungodly sinners? And what if I told you that God demonstrated his love in a timely way at the supreme sovereign moment? And what if I told you that God demonstrated his love gruesomely in Christ's death on the cross? And what if I told you that God demonstrated his love substitutionally as Christ died for us? What if I told you that God's love demonstrated in Christ's death for sinners is one more reason to rejoice in Christ? What if I told you that herein lies the primary reason to praise God and to please him and to proclaim the gospel? This is what I'm going to tell you today. That God demonstrated his love in the death of Christ for sinners so that we would live to praise him and to please him and to proclaim him. Now you should not be surprised. This should not come as a surprise to you. In fact, you should expect this. But will it spur you on to change? Often while suffering through this life, we lose sight of the goal and we find it difficult to praise God. We find it difficult to live in ways that please Him and even to proclaim the gospel. So I pray that God will lead us to yield to the change that He wants to bring about. So I want you to stand if you're able, and I'm going to read God's Word. Paul told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of scripture. God speaks by his spirit through his word. His word is powerful. It is everlasting. It is true. And it works in all who believe. I'm going to read the same passage I have read for several weeks now. Romans 5 verses 1 through 11. And we will be focusing on verses 6 through 8. So hear the word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more 
shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would have your way in our hearts today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have seen some amazing reasons to rejoice in Christ in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. God chose us in Christ. God justified us by faith in Christ. So we celebrate salvation's benefits. We rejoice that we have peace with God. We rejoice that we have access to grace. We rejoice in hope of God's glory. And we rejoice in our sufferings. God uses them to grow us, build endurance, develop character, deepen hope, give us assurance that steadies our souls. Hope will not be a point of shame for us, that God loves us, that we have the Holy Spirit. So today, another reason to rejoice, in verses 6 through 8. We rejoice that God's love is demonstrated in the death of Christ for sinners. Paul explains, this is what he's doing, he's explaining why God's love gives us hope and assurance. It's kind of like this. What if, after you hear that God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit that was given to you when you came to faith in Christ, Verse 5 tells us that you ask the question, but how do I really know? Well, the answer is Christ's death. That's how you really know. Christ's death is the focus of verses 6 through 8. There are three verses here in our English translations, but there are four Greek sentences in those three verses. And they all end with the verb to die. Is the emphasis of these three verses, these four Greek sentences, the death of Christ. That God demonstrates his love at the cross. I want you to notice the four things about this demonstration of love that are notable. The first thing I want you to notice is that the demonstration of God's love was merciful. God demonstrated his love mercifully toward weak sinners. Verse 6 tells us, while we were still weak. The verse begins with the word for. It connects verse 6 to verses 4 and 5. Paul is continuing what he has been saying. He's explaining now how it came about that we were justified And how we got peace with God secured, how we have access to grace, how future glory is anchored in God's initiative, his sovereign activity, his providential working. And he says, while we were, now that is in the present tense, 
It was our continual state. Our continual state was that we were weak. We were without strength, literally helpless. You felt helpless before many times. We were helpless, utterly unable to help ourselves, powerless, no way of escape. We were ailing, we were sin sick, too weak to rescue ourselves from the effects of the fall. Moral bankruptcy is being talked about here, not physical weakness. How unregenerate sinners are spiritually dead, incapable of helping themselves, unable and unwilling to follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He doesn't even understand them. Christ died for us when we were unable to obey him, no ability to save ourselves, unable to please God, incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. God didn't, you know, wait for us to start helping ourselves. He died for us when we were altogether helpless, feeble, no power to devise a scheme of justification or to make atonement for ourselves, and only our merciful God could save us. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 6, verse 2, which reads, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. It's the same Greek word for weak that is found here in Romans chapter 5. Ephesians 2 tells us that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Same idea. God is merciful towards the weak. God demonstrated his love mercifully toward weak sinners. That's the first thing we notice here. Second thing I want you to notice is that the demonstration of God's love was timely. It was timely. He demonstrated his love in a timely manner at the supreme, sovereignly ordained moment. Verse 6 says, at the right time. Now, there's two words for time in the Greek. There's chronos, which is chronological time, and there was kairos, which is a period of time. The Greek word here is kairos. At the right time, a point of time, a period of time, a time especially prepared for something. There's no precise chronology to this idea. But the idea is that it's an especially appropriate period of time. It's right, it's proper, it's favorable. It's a time when things have been brought to a crisis. It is a strategic point in time. Here is Paul, 25 to 30 years after the cross, saying that the world at that time that Christ died was ripe for the Savior to die. And you might be tempted to say, you know, our world right now is pretty bad. In fact, Worse than it was then. And all I can tell you is be very thankful that Christ died dead. There's nothing tardy about Christ's death, nothing late. The, the sacrificial sacrifice, the, the atoning sacrifice of God's Son was not an afterthought. It's not like, let's just fit this in. 
here in the calendar. This was the way that God from before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, decreed to deal with mankind's sin. And it was accomplished when he chose to. In Matthew 26, Jesus came to his disciples, this is before the cross, and he said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. It was going to happen. In John chapter 8, in that gospel, we read of Jesus teaching in the temple and no one seizing him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, he says, for this purpose I came to this hour. This is, this is like 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to die. John 17, God the Son is praying to God the Father and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This was at the right time. The King James puts it this way, in due season. According to season, divinely appointed for the demonstration of God's love. So, you ask the question, when was the right time? And why was this the right time? Because God chose that time. As one person put it, when we were powerless to escape from our sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to resist Satan, and powerless to please him in any way, God amazingly sent his son to die on our behalf, and we hadn't even been born yet. There's a mind blower for you. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son See, the appointed time was the appropriate time, in due time, at the moment God had chosen. God demonstrated his love mercifully and in a timely manner at the supreme, sovereignly ordained moment. I want you to notice third, the demonstration was gruesome. Gruesome. God demonstrated his love gruesomely in Christ's death on the cross. Now you read in all three of these verses, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, that Christ died. And it's so easy, is it not, to just go, yeah, he died. Christ means anointed one. Charles Spurgeon said this, the anointed one was sent upon a divine errand. Commissioned by supreme authority, Jesus is no unauthorized savior, no amateur deliverer, an ambassador clothed with unbounded power from the great king, a redeemer with full credentials from the Father. He died. And he died gruesomely. This word literally means to die off. Paul uses this verb to describe the death of Christ for sinners. This verb is found 100 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 42 times to describe Christ's death for us. He died. That's an emphatic last word in each of the Greek sentences here. In fact, this verse reads this way in the the order of the Greek as it was written. Christ, we being weak, 
in due season, four ungodly ones died. There's the emphasis. And how did he die? He was crucified. He was crucified gruesomely at Calvary. Already beaten to a bloody pulp, stripped of his clothes. Roman crucifixion was designed to be as gruesome and humiliating as possible. And the condemned was stripped naked to die with as little dignity as possible. The nails were like railroad spikes, five to seven inches long, to nail the wrist to the cross beam, which was then raised and attached to the vertical beam where the feet were nailed. Death would come by combination of blood loss from the brutal scourging, which was the beating, and asphyxiation. The victim could only take shallow breaths until his arms weakened, and so he would push his body up with his feet to breathe. Terrible pain. Pressure on the nail wounds and feet and hands. Open wounds on his back rubbing against the rough beams of the cross. And in this gruesome scene, the executioners would have two ways to ensure death. First, they would break the victim's legs with a huge mallet and then thrust a spear through their body. Jesus had already died, but Jesus got the spear. And there are even more hideous details of the cross. In fact, we'll probably look at some of those in coming weeks. Roman orator Cicero said this, The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's mind, but their eyes and their ears. Don't even go near it. Don't even watch it. Don't listen. It's gruesome. And Cicero saw unbearable nails, wooden beams, blood, carnage. But we see the ultimate demonstration of love. We see an extraordinary demonstration of love. Verse Peter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now we try to dress up this gruesome death. We want to market it to the masses and so we, we make gold crosses Rings and necklaces and we'll put cross tattoos on our body even. We'll put them on our t-shirts. I'm not putting you down if you're wearing a gold cross. But no one wears an electric chair around their neck. No one wears a hangman's noose as jewelry. Nobody wears a bloody cross. Christ's death was gruesome, inglorious, ignoble, shameful. Crucifixion was a curse. That of a common criminal. Death by asphyxiation. Barbaric, bloody, beneath the dignity of God. Yet, 
planned before the world began. Purposed in the heart of God because of his love. And so, we glory in that gruesome cross. The wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Where precious blood was spilled. Which leads Paul to say, may I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his love mercifully and in a very timely manner and gruesomely in Christ's death on the cross. I want you to notice the fourth thing about this demonstration of love. It was substitutionary. Substitutionary. The demonstration of God's love was substitutionary. That God demonstrated his love substitutionally as Christ died for us. You see in verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Now I want to look at the, the word ungodly first. There is no article before ungodly in the Greek. So it's not a separate group of people like, yep, he died for all those ungodly over there. He died for mankind. This is signifying mankind in general. And the ungodly, that word ungodly literally means without worship. It's two words. Ah, in Greek, without, and worship. Those who have no fear, no reverence, no respect for God, and they actively seek the opposite. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This ungodliness deserves wrath. This was us. Now verse 7 has puzzled a lot of people. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You're like, wait a minute, isn't righteous better than good? You know, uh, No one's going to die for a righteous person, but maybe for a good person they would die. And It's confusing, right? It's just like, wait a minute. Well, in this context, Paul is using, this is simple if you, if you really think about it, Paul is using righteous and good not in a theological sense, like you're right with God because you're righteous and you're good only because God is good. Not in that way, but just as it is used or as it was used in everyday Greek culture back then. It's kind of like how we would say, you know, that person is, is a pretty good person. So the idea of this, of this word righteous is just someone who rules themselves rightly, not righteous before God. And the idea of a good person here is People who, as a general rule, do good towards other people. You've got the idol-worshipping Greeks who, who may have laid down their life for a generally good person, though it would have been rare, as we see here, and in that culture it was frowned upon, actually. But no one would be out giving their life for an enemy. I mean, you hear stories of World War to soldiers who literally fell on grenades to save their friends. But there's no record of, 
of allied troops that fell on grenades to save Nazis. Firefighters, they risk their lives to rescue people from fires. But you don't see reports of firefighters who offer to go to prison for arsonists, the people who set the fires. A parent will pay the ransom for a child but would never post bail for the child's kidnapper. And so here we have us, not righteous or good, and Christ sacrificed himself for us. So even if someone would die for a seemingly good person, God, the perfect creator of all, sent Jesus, the perfect sovereign savior, to die for the worst sinners. That's crazy substitution. Look at verse 8. Look at the text. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Put your eyes on those words. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God actively demonstrates love. He shows us. He didn't just tell us. God in love willed and worked to save us while we were totally wicked. Substitution. You think any parent would willingly lay down their life for their child. But here you have God before the world began purposing to glorify himself by saving a people for himself. And he demonstrates his love in a magnanimous demonstration that could only be accomplished by God. Jesus died for us. The key word there is the word for. It is the Greek word huper. It's a Greek preposition that is found three times in this passage, once in verse 6, once in verse 7, once in verse 8. It expresses substitution. For means in the place of, for the benefit of, on behalf of, instead of. Christ died instead of us, in our place. So Huper speaks of Christ's substitutionary death. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And then he says, the bread which I shall give for, who pair, a substitute for, the life of the world is my flesh. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for, who pair, a substitute for, the sheep. John 11, verse 50. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for, who pair, a substitute for the people. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life 
for, who pair, a substitute for his friends. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for, who pair, a substitute for, us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for, who pair, a substitute for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for, who pair, a substitute for, the unjust, to bring us to God. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died for us. Human love is choosy. We love those who love us. We love those who we think look lovable. Or maybe they act lovable. God's love is not dependent on how good you are or how much you serve him. It's choosy in a different way, as the Bible tells us. Believers were, as Ephesians 1 says, chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer today and and you're hearing this, it should lead you to embrace your eternal security. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ and you belong to him forever. God demonstrates his love in the death of Christ for sinners mercifully, timely, gruesomely, substitutionally so that we would live to praise him that we would live to please him, that we would live to proclaim the gospel. We are not surprised. But will it spur us to change? There are always things in our life. We who, while suffering, find it difficult to praise God, and to please God, and to proclaim the gospel. And this truth, this, this heart of the gospel, there is great reason to praise God. Because God's love has no cause outside of himself. His love for his own is unchanging, and it's not based on our loveworthiness, but on his character. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 3 through 14. A lot of parallels in Ephesians 1 to Romans 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, to his praise, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. This is reason to praise him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us generously, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We have great reason to praise God. And we have great reason to please him. To please him, you know, it says that Christ died for the ungodly. So you're either godly or ungodly. Ungodly means not worshiping God. So you're either not worshiping God or you are worshiping God. If you're worshiping God, then you're in the category of godly. Godly means worshiping and serving God. Now, you know what is a great uh, restrainer to evil? Godly fear. Godly fear is a strong restraint against evil. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. But you won't understand God's love until you understand how unlovable you were. Nothing you could do to save yourself. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and will raise him up on the last day. If you're not a believer today, you are in desperate need of a Savior. You're in desperate need. Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that I came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're feeling unworthy, your sense of unworthiness should drive you to Christ. Christ died for us. As one person said, never did the human ear listen to a more astounding and cheering truth. The cross gives us a driving ambition to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we're at home or absent, we make it our ambition, our aim to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We can come up with all sorts of ways you can please God. What I want to do is kind of go to maybe one of the more painful ways you can please God, one of the more difficult ways and to show you that everything else is included. That we please God when we sacrifice to help others. And I don't just mean, oh, let me give them a little bit more than I usually do and maybe just kind of go out of my way a little bit. Because there's a verse that I've been reading this week that I can't shake. It's gripped me by the throat and it's 1 John 3.16. Now, it's not John 3.16. You know that verse. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're not a believer today, you need to believe that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and and you shall be saved. He died on the cross in our place. He was buried. He rose from the dead. and He's coming back. But this is 1 John 3.16. And here's how it goes. The first part, we're, we're right with it here. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for, who pair, a substitute for us. But it's the second part of the verse that is extremely challenging. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A sovereign Savior died in our place, so now we should show substitutionary love for fellow Christians. That's impossible in the flesh. But in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, all the good things we know, we can love, we can help, we can comfort, we can encourage, and the more painful things. We'll focus on that for a moment. To have the tough conversations that you don't want to have. I want to give you a sanctification, spiritual growth application that you serve God by yielding to correction or giving it. Everyone's like, can I give the correction? Well, people don't even like to do that. I, I tell people, often I tell myself, if you can't wait to give the correction, don't do it, your heart's not right. But serve God by yielding to correction and giving it. That God uses the body of Christ to bring back to health those who are spiritually sick, who are unable to help themselves. Let me give you an example. You catch a cold, and then you contract rhinorrhea. Rhinorrhea, also known as a runny nose. Now, you think of a runny nose as a bad thing, right? It's not comfortable. But it's good. I I got a cold this week when I was gone at the conference, and it was not good, and I got a runny nose. And I remember thinking to myself, where is all this liquid coming from? Is it like all stored up in my head and just keeps dripping out? Because I I extracted a lot, like blowing my nose all day long for like three days. I remember thinking to myself, what is going on? And so I Googled it, and I found out some important things. When you have a runny nose, it means that your immune system is doing its job and that your body produces mucus to expel all the bad stuff and flush it out. Well, similar to a runny nose, God uses others in the body of Christ to bring us back to health when we are spiritually sick. It's annoying. It's irritating. We don't like it. It can get painful, but it is good. People come and give you advice lovingly. People take you aside and lovingly correct or admonish you. That's uncomfortable. But don't see it as a bad thing, but as a good thing. That they love you too much to let you get worse. That they're serving God by laying down their life for you. 
because they're willingly risking your rejection. There are a lot of professing believers who reject loving correction. The self-willed reject it. But tender-hearted believers receive and repent and reconcile wherever needed. James 5 says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, true fellowship in Christ costs you and is not indifferent to the needs of others, even the most painful needs, because you're engaged in each other's lives. You do the one another's. You you go into the burning building to rescue, and you serve God when it's not easy or comfortable, and even when you feel too weak to help, because God delights to use weak vessels for his glory and others' good. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4 says we have this gospel treasure in earthen vessels, and God's promises fill us with hope, even when things don't look good. Because Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is going to be glorified in his church. So there's great reason to serve God, even in the most painful ways. And also a great reason to proclaim glorious gospel goodness. But again, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, I want to preach the gospel to all my neighbors, and you should. All your friends, all your relatives, all your acquaintances, you should preach the gospel to everyone. But I want to focus on on this. You need to preach the gospel to your own heart because your feelings keep pushing you away from gospel truth. So you need to preach the gospel in your own heart first and, and also to anyone who will listen. Preach it in Christ's strength and for his glory. But where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life is at the intersection of objective truth and real-time subjective living. God proves his love to us. Right here, we see it in the cross. He pours his love generously into our hearts at conversion and, and day by day. But there's a lot of believers who say, but I feel insecure about God's love for me. In justification, I was given a new identity in Christ, but my past still haunts me. You know that what God has done and what he will do in the future gives you security, but you don't feel it. So if you need proof that God loves you, look at the cross. The Spirit brings past tense proof home to your heart in the present that you could know right now, God loves me. God loves me. The Spirit gives present assurance of God's love. Uh, You know, our love for Jesus is the most important thing about us, but God's love for us is the most important thing. God's love for us is the ultimate and preeminent thing. We only love because he first loved us. And what God does is he pours into your heart in present experience the love he has for you. He anchors to your heart the objective truth of the cross. He fuses feelings of God's love with objective truth. It's like he super glues the objective demonstration of his love at the cross to your real life experience. If you have subjective feelings with no objective anchor, that doesn't give you assurance. If you have objective truth disconnected from subjective feelings, it's theoretical. 
And when your feelings fail, and you say, you know, I don't think God loves me because either of your sin or because of your suffering, the Spirit in the true believer's heart drives home the objective truth of the cross that demonstrates God's love for you. And you are never more alive than when you are rehearsing these truths in your own heart. And you're saying, what does the Bible say? What is what, is what Jesus did at the cross matter? How does it matter? How, how does it transform what I'm going through? Because God demonstrated his love mercifully in a timely way, gruesomely, substitutionally. He demonstrates his love in the death of Christ for sinners so that we would praise him and please him and proclaim him. It is not easy to love the weak and and add to that ungodly, opposed to all God stands for. That, That love is then amazing. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And Lord, we thank you that we have a merciful Savior who at the right time gruesomely, willingly allowed himself to be slaughtered as our substitute. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.